Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn to where we read our text, Esther chapter 8, Esther chapter 8, and may I say it's a joy to be at Northern Kentucky Baptist Church in Lakeside Park, Kentucky. Uh, We've been anticipating this ever since we met your pastor in Tallahassee, Florida for the IFFB meeting. What a wonderful week that was. We got to sing that week, and that's where we met your pastor. And here's what I know, In, in my very few short interactions with your pastor, your pastor loves you. Your pastor loves the Lord, and your pastor is a great shepherd of the sheep. He's not the great shepherd, but he's pretty close. No, uh, he is, he's a great pastor, and he communicates well, and you communicate well, and I could tell that there's a spirit of unity here, and I hope to, I hope to only glean and benefit from that time while we're here. Thank you for being so kind to our family. Thank you for uh, introducing yourself. Thank you for your kindness uh, while we've been here. You're in Esther chapter 8. And today, we're celebrating what tomorrow is. If I were to ask you what tomorrow is, most would answer, well, it's the 4th of July. Okay, keep going. What is it? Oh, it's Independence Day. Okay, what is that? That's the celebration of our independence from our oppressors, the British government. And we celebrate that as a wonderful day. What do we do for it? There's fireworks, there's barbecues, there's honoring those who have served, and there's, it's a day of celebration. I would call that, that's a good day. How many of you enjoy good days? We need good days like that every once in a while. I'd prefer those to the other kind for sure. And here in our text, we have a a very good day. This would be akin to the kind of celebration that you'd see on the 4th of July, Independence Day, here in our text. We are always going to have a tension between having our citizenship in heaven. Keep in mind, anybody who's in Christ is a new creature. You are already seated in heavenly places with him. You're already a citizen of heaven right now. And God's grip don't slip, so there's nothing that's going to change that. That's eternal security. But you'll always have a tension of living here in the nasty now and now and wishing for your ultimate home, the sweet by and by. And you'll always have that tension between being a citizen of heaven and a citizen of Kenton County, Kentucky, USA, for as long as you live. In the eighth chapter of Esther, it's one of the most glorious chapters of history. Uh, you could liken it to the 28th chapter of Matthew when Jesus communicates the Great Commission. Uh, this is one of the greatest days in history and it's still celebrated to this day. And it's a celebration for the people of God. Look at verse 17. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast. And a good day. Sounds like what we do on a good day. But keep this in mind. Keep on going. And many of the people of the land became Jews. For the fear of the Jews fell upon them. So like I said, this is one of the highest points of history. Highest points of scripture. But you'll notice amidst all this glory that there's a name that pops up over and over and over again. Notice verse 1. Chapter 8. 
And on that day did King Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy. Look at verse 2. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman. Look at verse 3. And Esther spake yet again before the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman, the Agagite, and his device that he devised against the Jews. Look at verse 5. And said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the things seem right before thy eyes, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's province, is. Look at verse 7. Then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther, the queen, and to Mordecai, the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. So in the very best chapter for God's people, you see a villain, or what scripture calls an enemy. It's the worst memory of God's people. Why is this man, this, this noxious presence, in this otherwise glorious text, why is he here? It just shows God's power and his inspiration for this book. It shows that man didn't write this book, but God did. Let's consider this. Haman the Agagite is given this distinction of not once or twice or three times or four times, but five times. This one man is identified with one title. He is Haman the enemy. He's Haman, the enemy. Could I ask this question? Do God's children have enemies? It's true. Esther chapter 7. Go back one chapter. Esther chapter 7, verse 6. So Haman, so Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, to whom the king would delight to do honor more than myself. That's, verse, that's chapter 6, but let me read verse 6 of chapter 7. And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. It's an adversary, an enemy. He's wicked, he's a destroyer, and that's Haman. The Holy Spirit, the writer of this book, calls Haman the enemy. So not only is he an enemy of God's word, he's an enemy of God himself, and you'll find that he's an enemy of God's people as well. Uh, look at chapter 9, verse 10, please. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Enemy of the Jews slew they, but on the spoil laid not their hand. So that's four separate times. Look at verse 24 of this same text. Chapter 9, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews devised. It's a wonderful, wonderful story here, but you have to in order for us to understand the wonder, you have to understand the enemy. Finally, let's look at Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3, verse 10, please. 
And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. It's ama- this is an amazing story for a lot of reasons, isn't it? Uh, you've heard this in Sunday school. It's from your earliest part of your life. If you were raised in church, you've heard the story preached of Esther. And you've heard about that wicked Haman. But it, this is a wonderful story for a lot of reasons. But what's evident is that God's power and presence is there even though his name isn't mentioned once. The name of the Lord in all these ten chapters is never mentioned. And that's what makes this book so powerful and instructive for us. What do we do when it looks like the Lord hasn't showed up yet? What do we do in the darkness when we know the Lord is here but we can't see his hand? Do you understand that there's no miracles in the book of Esther? There are no angels. There are no prophets. There are no priests. There are no signs and wonders. There's not a mention of other scripture anywhere in the book of Esther. Just the Jews and the people that hated Haman and Haman that hated the Jews. God's not mentioned, but Haman is mentioned over and over again. And so is that wicked king, Ahasuerus. These, are, these people changed the world. These people and their impact in this story are still felt today. They've endured until Jesus came to be born in Bethlehem to parents that were of Nazareth. They endured through scriptures and the writings of the apostles and Paul and Bethlehem and Calvary and Mary and Martha and an empty tomb. The whole counsel of God was written. The book of Acts, including the New Testament church and his soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This story still endures. This is a people that Haman hated and it's a people that have endured throughout all of history. You're in chapter 3, look at verse 8. Then Haman said to the king Ahasuerus, there is a certain people. Underline that if you're in the habit of doing so. There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. Uh, we know in verse 9 it says that he's the enemy. Or verse 10, he's the enemy. But look at what happens in verse 9. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. And what's the strategy here? I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. So I'm going to pay people to kill all of God's people. And guess what? I'm going to bring all the spoil into the king's treasury. So we're both going to benefit. I'm going to get rid of God's people, and you're going to make some money. And what happens? Verse 13 says it this way. And the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish. That's redundancy for emphasis. Just to be clear, how many Jews? All Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. 
So hear this. This is what this is what the world thinks of Christians, and this is what the world thinks of Jews. This is what God's people faced in Rome in the days of the New Testament. This is what God's people faced when they had Pharaoh as a ruler. This is what God's people faced under Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot, and today under Kim Jong-un, where if you're simply caught with any portion of Scripture, not only are you arrested, but your entire family is arrested and condemned. That's what's going on right now in 2022. And Haman said, the Jews, these are my enemies. And then the Jews said, Haman is our enemy. And Haman said, there's a certain people. And they're different, O king. They need to be completely destroyed. Sometimes I wish God's people would open their eyes and see what's actually going on. See what's happening in the society that they're living in. This isn't a society that we can negotiate with. They are absolutely after the destruction of everything that we believe in. So how is it different that we, the children of God, would be any different than God's people back in the day? Because the world says, or Haman has said, they are different. Different how? Number one, they had a different law. They had a different law. Now look at chapter 3, verse 8. There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse or different from all the people. Hey, their law is not your law, O king. This is a false false allegation about the king's law. It's an ancient slander that God's people don't follow the laws of the land. In fact, if you want an example of who does follow the laws of the land, to its letter, you look no further than the people of God. Mordecai and the Jews and Esther did follow the laws of of the land, but they had a different law. They had a higher law, and that was none other than God's law. If you read this book and look at the times that they were living, yes, they did keep the law. These weren't the unruly ones. These were the ones who did keep the law until a law was written that made it impossible to keep on following God and following men. You read it all throughout the Old Testament. Daniel the three Hebrew children, they too were law abiders in the land until the pagan leadership invented a new and diabolical law that was completely against God himself. And it became crystal clear, self-evident, that God's people did live under a different law because it was a higher law. In fact, it was a divine law. Until June 24th, 2022, Abortion on demand was the law of the land. And make no mistake about it, about who struck that law down. It wasn't six Supreme Court justices. It was God himself. It was constitutional. It was not constitutional in 1972 or 1962 or 1932, or 1842. For nearly 200 years of history, it was unconstitutional. But for 50 years, abortion on demand was the law of the land. And keep this in mind. 
Just because we've celebrated a, a victory recently doesn't mean stronger laws aren't coming behind it. Worship God for this victory and continue to convince the gainsayers. And it serves as a reminder today that Christians have never been the enemy of any land or society or country. But Haman made the people of God enemies of the land because he made the law. Now, you and I enjoy a very unique citizenship in the United States of America, don't we? pastor just mentioned that he grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance before class every single day. I did the same in Houston when I grew up. And that's how blessed are we? We are people that live in a nation whose laws were conceived by the Judeo-Christian ethic, but also the words of Scripture. We are a God-blessed people. When we pray, God bless America, it's because he has, and we pray that he still will. As the generations change, it will become a greater landscape of hostility towards what we are preaching and teaching here today. Brother Johnson, it's different today. They don't embrace the gospel like they used to. The important thing is, don't freak out. Don't lose, don't lose your sanity over what's going on, over the insanity that's going on in the world. Keep this in mind. There will be a tension for all of your life because you are not ultimately a citizen of the United States. You are a citizen of heaven. The old hymn says it this way. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? It's just a reminder for us today that we embrace a different law. In fact, it's a higher law. When we make our laws for the land, it is all because we understand that there's a higher authority even than any seat of government or place of power, and it's God himself. Our money echoes this phrase, in God we trust. It's not money that is our highest ideal, it's not our laws that are the highest ideal, but God himself. We have a different law, and number two, we have a different loyalty, Look at chapter 3, verse 1. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat, where? Above all the princes that were with him. Uh Uh-oh, that's going to be a problem, right? This is a guy who has a, a racist, genocidal plan, and he's about to come to power. He's about to be able to do something about it. Look at verse 2. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. There's a pressure, even in our country, to bow down before certain things, isn't there? There's a force. Not just to be tolerant. Uh, When I was going to school, and I went to a large public school in Houston, and Tolerance was the highest virtue of the day. Just be tolerant. But what that truly means is it not, it's not just to tolerate, but celebrate the ideals of a culture. And there will not be any satisfaction even with your celebration of what the world is doing. That's the truth of the matter. Because we have a higher, higher loyalty, Mordecai refused to bow down. 
And we ought to refuse to bow down as well. Verse 4, please. Now it came to pass when they spake daily unto him. How often did they come to Mordecai? Daily. Uh, Cancel culture is the modus operandi of the day. And how incessant. How often does it happen when they shut down thoughts, beliefs, and ideals? If you want to try an experiment sometime, post any idea at all and you'll have an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, Cancel culture is relentless and they were relentless in this day. They spake daily to him. Verse 5, please. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then Haman was full of wrath. The real problem of being an enemy of God's people with Haman was a matter of loyalty. What was Haman after? He was after worship. Make it clear, this is a worship war. Could I ask you this? Who is seated right now ruling and reigning on the throne room of your heart? It's a matter of worship and devotion. Who is the Lord? Who is God? Who deserves a bowed knee? Who deserves worship? There's a worship war going on in our text today, and there's a worship war going on today. What is celebrity culture apart from a worship war? If it's a problem thousands of years ago, it's certainly a problem for us today. There's still a temptation to bow down before men. Beloved, see this challenge to bow down in the light of Scripture. What does the story say? Look back at chapter 1, verse 1. Look at the very beginning of the story. How did scene 1 start? It started with a worship war. What was not only... Was Haman after? What was Ahasuerus after? Who was Ahasuerus? This was King Xerxes of history. There was a very popular movie, I've never seen it, called 300. And it told the story of his, of his army going against the Greeks, the Spartans of the day, and being utterly defeated. His immortals, the army that was after them, defeated by a small band of soldiers. And it was this Xerxes who felt like he was a god. In fact, listen to the language of our text. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This is Ahasuerus, which reigned, if you've got a map in your mind, picture this, from India even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces. It's 127 provinces. This was a huge footprint on the known world. Power, this was the greatest power, the greatest superpower on earth. That's who who this man is. He's 35 years of age at this point. He inherited the kingdom when his father, Darius, died at age 36. And so he's got this huge footprint of a kingdom. He's got this army that he's recruited that's one of the best on the planet and he feels every bit of the power that he's inherited so what does he do he wants to showcase the power look at verse 2 in those days uh, when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom which was at Shushan the palace in the third year of his reign he made a feast unto all his princes and servants the power of Persia and Media, the nobles of princes and provinces being before him. And when, listen to the words here. 
You'd expect to find this in Revelation or any worship song. Here it is. And when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore days. So what's happening here? This is a 180-day party. He's so wealthy. He's so famous that he invites all of the princes, 15 thousand men. He wants to showcase his 10,000 man army called the immortals. You might remember from history that Saddam Hussein, uh, a, a cartoon version of Xerxes, wanted to train his army in East Germany and he called his Republican guard. He modeled it after this Persian emperor, after the immortals. Power. That's what he's after. Powerful people want people to bow down before him. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And this was already in his first year, he is feeling the corruption of his power. He's having a 180-day party that's paid for on the backs of slaves and worshiping subjects. A six-month party. Look at verse five, please. And when these days were expired, a king made a feast. So after the 180-day feast, after the 180-day party, he has a a one-week feast unto all the people, not just for the princes. This is for everybody now. You're invited here. Uh, the, uh, The plebeians, the red solo cup crowd, are now invited to worship. And they were present in Shushan the palace, both great and small, seven days in the court of the gardens of the king's palace, which were white, Green, blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. And the beds were of gold and silver on pavement of red. You wonder where we get the red carpet? Here it is. Pavement of red and blue and white and black and marble. So all these people are gathered across the known world to gawk at the majesty and the splendor and the power of this king, this wealthy king, this lavish lifestyle, and the man who had it all. And uh, he's bringing out the expensive stuff. And they gave them all drinking vessels of gold and the vessels being different from one another. These vessels are golden chalices and none of them are the same. Verse seven, and they gave him drink in vessels of gold the vessels being diverse from one another, and royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. And the drinking was in according to the law. None did compel. They weren't forbidden here. They were to do up to their heart's content. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. That's a that's a bad rule. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls you know that there's bad stuff going on here. Six months for a party. I remember a few years ago when Jay-Z had a big New York bash with 120 bottles of the most expensive alcohol and outlandish, lavish gifts and food and parties with celebrities, and they bragged about it on social media. And in one night, he had a party that cost over a million dollars, and he bought a $600,000 golden rocking horse for his daughter, Blue Ivy. And in that same spirit of Xerxes, well, watch this. A $1 million one-night party is a tailgate at a Bengals game compared to this six-month party. Why does the Bible tell us so much detail about this party? 
Have you wondered that? What's the purpose of state dinners or award show after parties in Hollywood? Why the red carpet? Why do they invite the paparazzi to come? They want the worship. They want the fame. They want the splendor. They want the notoriety. They want you to worship them. He opened the doors of the kingdom seven days and let the regular folk like you and me admire the hangings and curtains and fine linen and the golden beds and pillars of marble. And if you read about how Vashti's setup was, picture a huge mall that was just her bedroom. She had everything that this world had to offer. Rooms and rooms of closets filled with clothes and jewels. But then... Not satisfied with that kind of worship, he sees God's people and he hates them. And they're scattered abroad and they won't bow down. Oh, the nerve of those people that won't give us the glory that we feel is due our name. You know why? We have a different loyalty. Our loyalty is ultimately before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I love our country. I pray for our country. I pray that our country sees a revival in our lifetime. And I hope it starts here. And I hope it spreads from shore to shore. I pray for our president. But keep this in mind. I have a different loyalty. We have a higher citizenship. Compared to our king, Xerxes, the son of Darius, we have Jesus, the son of God. Xerxes never knew poverty or humility. Our Lord knew them both. Xerxes spent his life being served. The Lord Jesus Christ came and spent his life serving others. Artaxerxes sat upon a throne in Shushan, and now that throne is gone. The Lord Jesus Christ sits on a throne of the universe, and it's everlasting. Xerxes killed every one of his enemies, and Jesus saves and loves his enemies. Xerxes died, and all of his glory is gone. Our Lord And his glory will go on forever and ever and ever and ever. Xerxes had a banquet for six months. Jesus is preparing a supper in a kingdom that will have no end. Xerxes claimed to be a God. Jesus Christ is God who became man to claim the lost. We have a different loyalty because of the obvious majesty and worship that's due. The only one who is due that credit the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Number three, we have a different purpose. Revelation chapter four says, he has made us kings and priests to God and we shall reign on the earth. Guess what? A few years, uh, 80 years of opposition to the modus operandi, opposition to uh, uh, to the zeitgeist of the age will only mean glorification in all of eternity to come. Can you last a few sharp words? Can you last a a few bits of uncomfortable time in order to gain the world that Christ has for us? We have a different purpose. Look at chapter 3 now, verse 15. The post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and the the decree was given in Shushan, the palace. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. Of course they would. What do the powerful do? They want to glory in their own successes. But the city, Shushan, was perplexed. What else do you expect from the enemies of the people of God? They plan to annihilate God's people, and now they toast each other in pride. 
But this isn't the story, the end of the story. In just a few short days, a few short moments, uh, in a couple of hours, there's a detail that we're going to get from Mordecai's dream. Look at Esther chapter 7, verse 10, please. What happened? Let's fast forward to the end of the story. Here it is, verse 10, chapter 7. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. So this is an irony, really. This is an amazing detail for God's people today. Haman the enemy commanded that all the Jews would die on those gallows. And he ended up being hanged on those same gallows. Look at chapter 8, verse 15, where we started. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple and the city of Shushan went from being perplexed. Here it is. They rejoiced and they were glad. That is a good day. The darkness was turned to light. And the power of God in this unseen hand was poured out on Haman. And then the glory of God was seen in Mordecai. There's a holiday that's celebrated by God's people right now called the Feast of Purim. Chapter 9, verse 17. On the 13th day of the month, Adar, and the 14th day of the same rested day. Uh, keep this in mind. If... If you're in trouble, life is a few days full of trouble, Jesus provides rest. Rest for your souls. And on the 14th day of the same, rested they and made it a, a day of feasting and gladness. This feast of Purim is celebrated every spring by our Jewish neighbors. And they, can, they commemorate Purim 2,500 years ago as the night that Haman and all of his ten sons were hanged for carrying out their father's genocide. And uh, some of its echoes were felt in 1946 at the Nuremberg trial. Uh, some of his, uh, Hitler's henchmen um, were hanged on that same day on Purim of 1946. And there were 11 of them that were scheduled to be hanged, one uh, ended up hanging himself before the public hanging. And it's amazing how that echoes in history. There were ten sons of Hamadatha and uh, Haman, and it echoes in, in history. In 1953, a few years later, Stalin, who was an enemy of the Jews, he wrote an edict to deport Jews in the Soviet Union to Siberia. Men, women, children, and babies, all of them. And just before Stalin signed his own law, he suffered a stroke. Guess what day he suffered a stroke on? Purim of 1953. Ultimately, God's in charge, isn't he? The story of 300 uh, Greek Spartans it just shows the humiliation of a few over many. And God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Keep this in mind. We go out into a dark world armed with three sources of light. Number one, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
In Psalms, we're reminded, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then Jesus said, ye are the light of the world. Ye are the light of the world. We go out into the world together, which is why we need to meet together, because we need the light of each other that God has promised. We need to meet together, and uh, we need to bear one another's burdens and sharpen each other and edify one another. But we have a light that goes from the inside out from God himself. John Newton once wrote this, his love in time past forbids me to think he'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms his good pleasure to help me quite through. The darker the night, the brighter the light shines. Brother Johnson, I'm a Christian. I'm a New Testament Christian. And I don't believe that we can make any person an enemy. I believe in Christ you don't get to pick who you love anymore. Uh, Watch this. It's the people that decide to be an enemy. Could I read this to you? Philippians chapter 3 verse 18 says it this way. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They've made themselves enemies of God himself. And guess what? You're on the radar and you have a target on your back as an enemy. If there were people in Haman's day and there were many with him, If there were people in Paul's day that were enemies of the cross, the Lord has enemies now. And we have an opportunity today. Choose ye, choose you, this day whom you will serve. Will you serve the leaders of culture today for a few moments of applause in history? Or will you serve the King of kings and Lord of lords for an eternity, walking and talking in his very joyous presence. It's clear to me. Today, you're invited. Receive Jesus Christ, and you'll have all the power and victory you're promised by the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection was for your sin, to prove that you couldn't save yourself, to prove that the only righteous one was Jesus himself, And he died for you on the cross. And if you'll put your faith, your simple, childlike, eternal weight of belief solely on Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. You'll be in Christ. You'll you'll be in the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. Those hands of Jesus are in God's immutable grip. And you will be a new creature. Old things will have passed away. All things are become new. Today, while there's a choice to be made, choose the Lord Jesus Christ. He's reigning now, and he has invited you to come to him. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes as we stand. No one's looking around. Today, we celebrate a good day. Tomorrow, the 4th of July, Independence Day from our British oppressors. But today, we see in our text that the people of God, the people of God have every right to celebrate. There was a great victory that was accomplished and God was in control the whole time. Today, if you're not saved or you're not sure, would you trust Christ as your Savior? Don't leave today wondering, hoping, wishing that you were saved. Uh, There will be a, 
a note of invitation that's played as soon as you hear that first note of music. Would you come and bow before the only one who is worthy of your worship and of your heart and trust him with it today? If you're not saved or you're not sure, I'd like to pray for you. No one's looking around. We're all friends here anyway. If you're not saved or you're not sure, I'd like to pray for you. Just slip up your hand. If you say, Brother Johnson, I've heard the message today and I want to be sure that I'm saved, pray for me. Anybody like that? Slip up your hand. I won't embarrass you. You say, Brother Johnson, I needed this message today. Our country needed this message today. I want to be confident in the one who's in charge anyway. I needed this message, Brother Johnson. Would you pray for me too? If that's you, slip up your hand. Anybody like that? I needed this message about our holy God. I see several hands. Anybody else? I'll pray for you too. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the power and the victory that you've given We read of Esther, but we also read of Haman. And Lord, you take care of the Hamans that are in history and the Hamans that are in our life. Lord, we can trust you even in the dark times. Lord, we're going to trust you for for our future, just like we've trusted you for salvation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.